So we're back in 1 Corinthians, and um, this part of the letter, starting with chapter 7, is a new, new section um, where Paul begins to respond to some things that the Corinthians had brought up to him. And so the start of chapter 7 begins, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul, and Paul is going to now respond to them. And so several times over these next uh, few chapters... Um, he'll say, now concerning this, and he'll, he'll turn to various of these, these matters. But the subject matter here in chapter 7 does carry over from what we last looked at in chapter 6. In chapter 6, the big idea was flee from sexual immorality, um, because what you do with your bodies matter. Your bodies, our bodies matter. And so the last couple verses of chapter 6... Paul writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So one of the big ideas there is just that being a Christian and glorifying God isn't only an inward, quote-unquote, spiritual matter. It isn't only about inner beliefs and feelings. It also involves our bodies and our actions, including our sexuality. God created our bodies, and he created sex for certain purposes and ends. And then in this section before us today, in chapter 7, we are given a couple specific ways to flee from sexual immorality. A couple ways to honor God with our bodies. Namely, sexual intimacy in marriage, or celibacy, or refraining from marriage and sex. And Paul is going to go into each of these in turn. Now, this can be a difficult message for various reasons, but one of the reasons, particularly in today's world, is that in our world, and even in the church at times, the message communicated is that what is most important about you is whether you are married or not, sometimes this can be the message we communicate in the church, or whether you are sexually fulfilled or not. This is, in large part, the message in the world. That if you are not married or not fulfilling your sexual desires, you are not truly living life to the fullest. You're missing out. Let me state very clearly right up front, that is a lie from Satan. That is a lie from Satan. That is not where identity and worth come from. That is not the source of happiness and purpose and joy in life. And to approach either marriage or Sex in that way is to make an idol of them, to, to put them on par with or above God, and to look to them to things that only God can deliver. So we'll get into that some more, but I just want to state that very clearly up front. So let's work through these verses. We'll go up to verse 9 today, but we'll start with just verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So again, the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul uh, that touched on a number of issues and questions, and and Paul is going to begin to respond to those here and then throughout the next few chapters. And here the matter is sexual relations. Now, in many of your Bibles, the second part of verse 1 will be in quotations. 
as, as it is up here. And that is because most commentators believe that this is a phrase or a saying or a belief of at least some among the Corinthians, perhaps something that they said in their letter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If this were Paul's statement, if Paul was just stating this blatantly, it's not good, uh, it wouldn't fit with the rest of this passage where he actually goes on to encourage sexual relations in marriage. And it doesn't fit well with his theology in general. And so the most likely explanation is that there is a contingent of people in Corinth who were ascetic. That is, they thought all bodily pleasure was bad. They thought the, that the ideal way to live was to reject and resist all bodily pleasures and comforts. And so, concerning sex, they were saying something like this. It is best, it is ideal not to engage in it. If you want to be truly spiritual, if you want to be close to God, most pleasing to God, abstain. Now, before going on and looking at Paul's response, just remember as we go through all of this that Paul, that's the context. That's the context that Paul is responding to. That's the situation in Corinth. There's a particular situation for this letter and for what Paul is going to say. And so part of what that means is Paul isn't going to say everything there is to say about marriage and sex or singleness. He's not giving us a full treatise on these topics. He's responding to a specific situation and belief in Corinth. And one of the reasons this is important to remember is because sometimes as we go through this, it can seem, if you don't keep that in mind, that he presents marriage merely as an outlet, outlet for sexual desires, for those who lack self-control, as if that were the only purpose of marriage. But we know from what Paul says elsewhere and what the Bible gives us elsewhere is that there's much else that can be said about marriage. It is a good gift from God. It has the purposes of procreation, of pleasure, of a picture of God's relationship with his people. But again, Paul's not going to go into all of that here because of the context. So how's Paul going to respond to this statement? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. As we go into verse 2, uh, we see that his answer is essentially yes, but not in marriage. So look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, there are a couple of ways to read this. There are a couple of ways that this verse could be understood. The first, which I will argue is, is not the correct one, is this. Each man should go out and find and obtain a wife. Each woman should go out and find and obtain a husband. Essentially, everyone should get married. So it could be read that way. But this doesn't fit with the rest of this passage. Um, particularly, Paul's going to go on to say that some people have the gift of marriage given by God's grace, and some people have the gift of singleness, or at least for a time, given by God's grace. These are both gifts of God. And so it wouldn't really make sense for Paul to begin. Everyone should go get married. More likely... Man and woman here in verse 2 refer to married men, husbands, and married women, wives. And so Paul is saying each married man should have, wink, wink, 
his wife. And each married woman should have, wink, wink, her husband. I don't need to explain the winks, right? Which is exactly what the next few verses say. In other words, if you're married, you know what you should be doing. And you're not more spiritual, more holy, closer to God if you're not doing it. In fact, if anything, the opposite may be true in marriage. Why? Well, because, as Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. So one purpose of marriage is a context for sexual intimacy, an outlet for sexual desires, and a a guard against temptations to sexual immorality. One purpose. This is clearly not the only purpose. Marriage is good and purposeful in other ways, but this is one purpose in God's design. Now, notice that in saying this, there is the acknowledgement that there will be temptations to sexual immorality even in marriage. Marriage doesn't solve that. Marriage doesn't completely do away with that, even if it does provide an outlet for it. And perhaps there is a a measure of comfort simply in the fact that God, knowing that God is well aware that we will face such temptations, God is not a prude that he's unwilling to talk about such things. Well, let's not talk about sex or temptations. And we shouldn't be like that in the church as well. This passage is before us today, and we're not skipping over it. No, God knows us through and through. If you're married, if you're single, God knows you. He knows the struggles, the fights, the temptations that you face, he knows, he knows you, and you can bring them to him. But he doesn't just know us. He doesn't just acknowledge these things and leave it there. He also gives us the means to fight against them and calls us to do so. And he gives us a variety of ways to do that. So one One of these means is is marriage, but there are others. So as you attempt to flee from sexual immorality in your life, for one, consider the lies that you believe that tempt you down that road. What are you believing about God, about yourself, about happiness that leads you down that road? That it will satisfy? That it's good? that God isn't good, that God isn't there, that God doesn't see, doesn't have your good in mind. Speak these truths to yourself over and over again. Additionally, stay in community with other believers who are also battling. Whether you're married or not, find someone to confess your sins and struggles to and to be held accountable to. Um, If I could just mention one book, one of my favorite authors, Ray Ortland, has a, a newer book called The Death of Porn. It is really good. It is really gets to the heart and is gospel and heart focused. Highly recommend it, not just for men and not just for men battling porn. It is really good. Paul continues on, verse 3. And 
this makes clear the, the interp interpretation or understanding of verse 2 that we just looked at. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. Now, verse 6 in some of your Bibles may be separated in a new paragraph, but I actually think it belongs as part of that paragraph. Now, as a concession, not a command, this is about the devoting yourselves to prayer for a limited time, I, I say this. Now, this can be a fairly shocking section to read. But notice where the emphasis is. Marriage is not about taking and demanding, that's not the emphasis, but about giving and serving. Even though marriage provides a context for fulfilling some desires, this is not to be done in a selfish or demanding way. So you have this term, conjugal rights. Well, this refers to an obligation, a something due, a debt. If you're married, you owe something to your spouse. But they don't have to earn. It's not yours to hold over their head as punishment. It's part of what you commit to in marriage. Paul goes on to say that a husband or wife doesn't have authority of their own body. This is in part because in marriage, you are not merely your own. The two become one, as Paul has just quoted Genesis in, in the previous section. When you enter into a marriage, you become one in a deep and mysterious way. And because of this, you are called to live in a way of, of serving and giving and submitting and lifting up the other. And not just domineering and saying, well, my way or, or else. Including in sex. Not only when you feel like it, not to please yourself, not only when there are obvious benefits to you, but as an act of selfless love and service. This whole section is really about giving yourself. Not taking, not demanding, but giving. It says, do not deprive one another, or do not keep back yourself. Refrain from giving yourself to your spouse. Now, it's really important, lest this be taken the wrong way, to notice that neither here or anywhere in Scripture are we told, demand that your spouse give you what you want. Demand that your spouse serve you. Hold it over their heads, punish them if they don't meet your needs. That is not what this is saying. One commentator says, Paul's emphasis is not on you owe me, but on I owe you. We don't get to say, here are my needs, meet them. Yes, communicate. Communicate your desires, your needs, but also listen to your spouse. That's what marriage and the oneness of marriage is about. You, working together. Uh, it's not about one canceling out the other. It's not about the desires and priorities and feelings and needs of one ruling over the other. It's about coming together, two becoming one. Two sets of needs and priorities and desires and feelings and passions coming together and learning to love and serve and submit to one another. 
throughout God's word, it is clear that there is to be much care and consideration and mutual submission between husband and wife. Paul calls husbands particularly to nourish and cherish their wives. I mean, you just think of that, those terms like tenderly, provide for, care, enjoy your wife. And it's not hard to imagine that when both husband and wife heed this, marriage is a beautiful thing. Now, the question probably comes up, well, what do you do when that's not the case? What do you do when it feels like marriage is completely one-sided? What if you do when you feel like, well, I'm, I'm doing my part, I'm serving my spouse, but there's little return. First of all, again, communicate. Communicate your desires and your needs and your thoughts without making demands. Patiently, graciously, with, with tenderness, and give your spouse many opportunities to acknowledge and respond to what you bring up. Secondly, remember that Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. And Jesus not only taught this, but he demonstrated this. God has given to us, given himself to us when we did not deserve it. We have a self-giving God. We owed him a debt, and yet he gave himself for us, willingly suffering and dying for us. He doesn't wait for us to earn something or to deserve something. He gives. He's patient. He's gracious and forgiving. And as we continue to live as his his children, he continues to give us things that we don't deserve. And he loves to do it. And this is the foundation of all relationships, including marriage. This self-giving God. We have been loved and served and pursued and treated gently and kindly when we don't, didn't deserve it. And we are called and empowered by his spirit to do the same to others. And in marriage, we... We must continually come back to this gospel truth. And then third, if, if, if the giving and serving in marriage is significantly one-sided on a continual basis, it can help to have others speak into the marriage. This can mean simply just being in a Christian community where that happens, where husbands Love on and, and speak the truth to husbands and wives to, to wives. Sometimes we are able to hear things from somebody that isn't our spouse better than when our spouse tells us it. And we can provide that for one another. So this is one reason that it is so important to encourage your spouse, your wife, your husband, to develop friendships in the church, men with men and women with women, and to allow those to develop. Or this may be seeking marriage counseling, whether from a pastor or a a Christian counselor, someone that can be an objective third party and speak God's truth into the relationship. We could stay on this topic for a while, but we need to move on. Marriage is not the only way to glorify God with your body and with your sexuality. Verse 
verses 7 through 9. Paul says, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Paul gets a little personal here, and it's helpful to recognize and to make a distinction in this chapter, and as we go on uh, as well, the difference between what Paul prefers personally and what Paul lays down as a universal truth or command. So here, Paul states his preference for all to be like him, which refers to as we'll see, as you see in verse 8 there, that he is single and fairly content in that, it appears. So Paul states his preference for, for that. But this is merely Paul's wish. This is not God's plan. Because in God's wisdom, each has his own gift. Now, this is perhaps the most significant part of this section. Because the word gift here is the same word for spiritual gift that we come to elsewhere in this letter, and we get to spiritual gifts a little bit later. Uh, it's the word charisma, and it means a gift of God's grace, something flowing from the grace of God given to help you serve others and glorify God, a particular way that God equips you to serve others and glorify God. And so what Paul is saying is that marriage is a spiritual gift of God's grace to some, and singleness, celibacy, is a spiritual gift of God's grace to others. Both can be good. Both can be evidences of God's goodness. Both can be spiritual gifts. So if you're married, your call is to see and treat your spouse as, and your marriage as a gift of God's grace. Not just something for your getting what you want. Not as a means to personal happiness and fulfillment. But as a way to experience and display the grace of God. Um, when I do premarital counseling, I usually have couples read a book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. And the premise of that book is, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if marriage was a context for God increasing in us love for God, likeness to God in the way we live and what we love, and love and service to others? That's part of what God intends in our marriages. And then if you're single, your call is to see your singleness as a gift of God's grace, at the very least, you have opportunities and time and bandwidth to do things that most married people don't. You can love and serve and give yourself to others in ways that are hard for married people and families. Now, we speak of gift, God giving gifts of grace in this, but certainly this does not mean that Either marriage or singleness don't come with inherent difficulties and tensions and struggles and temptations. 
Just because you may have a gift of God's grace doesn't mean there aren't difficulties that come with that. And we'll consider some of these next week when we get into divorce. But even in the midst of difficulties and temptations and perhaps daily reminders of the fall, that things are not all as they ought to be. We are called to see marriage or singleness as a gift of God's grace. Now, don't get too bogged down with the idea of the gift of singleness. We have this tendency to try to figure out our spiritual gifts, right? And to say, well, if that's my gift, then that's my gift now and always. If you are single right now, I would say you have the gift of singleness for now. That doesn't mean that will forever be the case. And I think verse 8 works towards this. Uh, In verse 8, Paul said, it is good for the unmarried and the widows to remain single. Now, in light of the overall point he's trying to make, I think what he's saying here in verse 8 is simply, there is goodness in remaining single. Not as a comparison with getting married, but just that that is good. There is goodness there. Even if you don't feel like you have the gift, perhaps you've been widowed, as he says there. And yet this won't be for everyone. For some, it will be good for them to get married. And so this isn't comparing marriage and singleness as, which one's better? Just merely stating that both are good options, both are gifts of God's grace. One is not more holy or spiritual than the other. So despite what our culture often says and what we can imply in the church, unfortunately, singleness is not a second-rate status. You are not out of place in the church if you are single, no matter what the reason. Whether never been married, divorced, widowed, desiring to be married, but unable to. You belong just as much as anyone. Our goal for you is not to get you married or, or to find a singles group that you can be a part of. Our goal is to walk with you as the family of God. As brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, daughters and sons. And whether you're married or single, you need this family. We all need this family. We need the presence and support and encouragement and accountability and faith and faithfulness of these people. These relationships are are important, especially if, if you're married. That doesn't mean you, you've got all the relationships you need. You need the church. And so give yourself to developing godly, fruitful, loving relationships with others in the church. And part of the reason for this is that there is something more important about you than your marital status or your sexual fulfillment. That's not the sum of who you are. That's not the source of your identity and worth. That's not what makes you valuable and loved and gives you purpose in life. 
If you have come to Jesus confessing your sin and trusted him and his death in your place, if you have rested in his person and work to be sufficient, then he is yours and you are his and he is your greatest treasure. Belonging to him, being found in him, having his presence and promises is worth more than anything else, including your marital status. So if you are married, yes, marriage is important, and you have important duties and responsibilities in marriage. And there can be great joy in marriage, but don't find your identity in your marriage. When marriage is generally good, don't idolize it and become cold to God. If marriage is generally hard, don't let that define you. And you belong to God first and foremost. Remember what he says about you. Remember who you are. Likewise, if you are single, don't stake all your hopes on getting married. Hope in Christ. Use your time to serve him and love his people. The, the guiding principle in all of this is how can we glorify God who bought us with the price of the life of his son? You were not your own, but bought with a price. How can you best glorify God? And part of what he's done is by his blood cleanse you of all sin, including sexual sin, including whatever guilt and shame you still feel for sin. In Christ, you are not defined by your sin or guilt or shame. You can come freely and confidently that does not have the last word on you. The cross does. And Jesus delights to call you his own and has washed you clean. And because of this, because of what he's done, because of who he is, there is no sacrifice, there is no service given for the glory of God. There is no struggle for the glory of God, whether in marriage or in singleness, that is not a fitting and appropriate response to him. And we're going to tangibly celebrate that and remember that now by taking communion. Because in communion, we are recognizing that the blood and body of Christ is our greatest treasure that he, the living Christ with us and for us, is our greatest treasure. It wipes us clean of all sin, shame, and guilt. And it makes every act of faithfulness to him worth it. Let's pray.